This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I'm looking forward to talking to my colleague from the Vancouver Sun today, very fine investigative reporter, Lori Colbert. Have you been paying attention to the series that she's had in the newspaper this week on how the previous B.C. Liberal government sold off uh, so many public assets uh, to raise money, over a billion dollars in sales. This was a program that the previous Liberal government set up to raise money. They identified surplus assets that the government owned, that you effectively owned yourself as a B.C. citizen and taxpayer, and started just selling off gobs of land here. They raised over a million bucks, but they sold off a lot of stuff. They sold off schools. They sold off uh, acres of agricultural land in Surrey. Uh, they sold off 164 pieces of surplus land that uh, the, the B.C. government held. Yeah, they made over a billion bucks, but that all that stuff is gone forever as a public asset. I'm going to talk about that today on the show. Here's the hot question of the day. 164 lots of public unused unused public land in BC worth a billion sold off since 2013. Former schools, hospitals, agriculture land. What do you think should be done with unused public land? Would you say sell it and get the money? Or would you say retain it and develop it for some other public use? At CKNW on Twitter. That's where you'll find that today. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-BUZZ. 2899. Big announcement yesterday from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project gets the green light. Once again, we got the reaction on both sides of it. A lot of people upset about it. A lot of people support the project too. We're back to the barricades in this pipeline fight here. Now we got great analysis, guests, and opportunities for you to have your say on the show today. Let's kick that off now with Jonathan Wilkinson. He is the Federal Minister of Fisheries and Oceans uh, in the Trudeau government. He's the MP for North Vancouver. I'm very pleased he could come on. Hi. Hi there. Hi, thanks a lot. A lot of people wondering about the timing of this announcement yesterday and your government's priorities here. You guys just announced a, a climate emergency. And then the next day, basically, you approve a heavy oil pipeline. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, no, it's not. Um, So the government made the decision on the Trans Mountain uh, twinning project um, in the context of having been part of the negotiations of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, having developed a Made in Canada plan to address climate change and to meet our Paris commitments. Um, Part of that included the emissions associated with the extraction of oil and gas uh, that will flow through this pipeline. So there's nothing inconsistent with uh, with our commitment to meeting our international obligations under Paris and this uh, and this project. I would also say that you know folks need to understand that that this project is is in part about ensuring the safety of transportation because increasing amounts of oil are being shipped out by rail. Uh, rail is a far riskier way to transport oil than uh, than our pipelines, and it's about extracting full value for our resources. We get a significant discount because our only customer right now is the United States. This project opens up avenues to Asia. So this is about ensuring we get full full value, but doing it in a manner that is fully consistent with with our uh, government's commitment to addressing climate change in a meaningful way. Okay, but you got to do it over the objections of a a lot of people and organizations here in BC, including, not the least of which, the government of British Columbia, the City Council in Vancouver, the City Council in Burnaby, a whole bunch of coastal First Nations here in BC. Can you really get this thing built when you've got so much opposition to it? 
Well, there are certainly folks on both sides of this, uh, people who are in support, people who are opposed and, and have been opposed for some time. Uh, and then there's the vast majority of Canadians and British Columbians who are kind of in the middle and who have legitimate questions and concerns that they want to see addressed. Um, and uh, and uh, yesterday we were speaking to those folks in terms of saying we have addressed the concerns around the marine environment, we have addressed the concerns with respect to climate change, and this project will generate significant economic benefits, some of which will be invested in accelerating the, the, the uh, transition to a lower carbon future. Um, right. This is a, a project that is in the national interest because the environmental impacts have been addressed and it generates significant economic wealth for the country. Okay, I'm assuming, though, that you're willing to acknowledge the obvious that approving this project, you increase the risk of a catastrophic oil spill into the ocean. Right. Well, if, if you, yeah, if you think about it just in terms of the number of ships, that would be true. But I would tell you that this, this project has really focused attention on the, the need for better spill prevention and spill response in the harbor more generally. And that's not just for oil tankers. That's for all of the large uh, ships that come in. I mean, you know very well that the largest single spill in the harbor in the last 10 years was the Marathasa. It had nothing to do with an oil tanker. Um, and what that showed is we needed to make more investments in both spill prevention and response. We've done that right. through the Oceans Protection Plan. We've done that through reopening the Coast Guard uh, base at Kitsilano. We've done that through mm-hmm. increased tug capacity with the Coast Guard. So I would tell you that shipping more generally through the harbor will be safer going forward than it has been over the last 30 years. But a spill of refined fuel is one thing. A, a spill of this heavy oil bitumen into the ocean is another. Can we clean this stuff up? Doesn't it sink when you dump it in the ocean? So the, uh, the, the behavior of bitumen in water, from a scientific perspective, um, at this point, the, all the science basically says that it behaves no differently than, uh, than other crude oils. And that is that you, uh, the faster you get to it, the more you are going to clean up. Um, but it doesn't behave any differently. People who try to say that bitumen is completely different from other crudes are simply not correct based on the science. But it does. But say you certainly, can't... this is one. This is one of the reasons why we've made such investments in in spill response. But the most important yeah. thing is prevention, so that you never have to deal with that. You know, people forget we've we've been shipping oil out of this harbor for sixty years. We've been shipping bitumen for thirty years. This is this is not something new. What is different? is that we're going to be having a larger number of ships, and thus we need to ensure that we're managing that safely. Okay, I'm speaking to Federal Oceans Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Obviously, there's a lot of opposition to the project, but there's a lot of support for it as well, including some people who who wonder if you guys are really committed to building this pipeline at all. I want to play this for you, Minister. This is uh, Conservative Leader Andrew Scheer. Show me the pipeline. Where is it? He announced last year that it would be operating this year, and it's not. What Canadians were hoping for today was a clear timeline for construction to start, and he failed to be able to tell Canadians on what date construction would actually start. Okay, what do you say to him? Well, I would say that I think, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Shear is living in, in uh, an environment that's about 20 years out of date. Um, at, in, in the modern world, you need to be able to show people that you are addressing legitimate environmental concerns that they have, that you are meaningfully consulting with Indigenous peoples. That is exactly what we have done. Projects need to be done in the right way if they are going to be able to be authorized to proceed. And Mr. Shear's idea that you're simply going to ram this down the throats of Indigenous communities and ram this down the throats of people who have legitimate questions about environmental concerns is simply wildly misplaced. Well, isn't that what you're doing, though, with the Indigenous 
bans, the First Nations that oppose this pipeline, the environmental groups that oppose it. I mean, you're ramming it down on them now. No, that's absolutely not correct. We've spent the last uh, several months with many, many different uh, folks in different departments working and consulting with Indigenous communities and looking to accommodate some of the concerns that they've raised. We Obviously, we had uh, Justice Iacobucci, former Supreme Court yeah. just, Justice, involved in that. We have, uh, we have, we believe, have uh, faithfully discharged our duty to consult and accommodate. Um, and, and I would tell you that people who think that Indigenous communities are monolithic on this are simply wrong. There are a number who are very much in favor and actually want to purchase an equity stake in the pipeline. There are many that are not strong on one side or the other, and then there are some who are adamantly opposed. There is a mixed view in the same way that there are in other communities across the country. Minister, what do you say to the people in your own riding there in North Vancouver? You're going to be facing them in four months, asking to be reelected. I, I think you've acknowledged in the past that there's some significant opposition to this project, even in, in the riding that you represent. What do you say to that, those people in North Vancouver today? I say the same thing to them that I've been saying for the last couple of years, which is I went to Ottawa to, uh, to ensure that we made decisions based on science and evidence. I got into politics in large part because of concern about climate change. I made sure in the discussions that were had earlier on with respect to this project that we were going to meaningfully address the climate issue and that any approval of this kind of a project would be consistent with our need to address climate. I also made the arguments very strongly that we needed to address marine response, and we have done that. And in the context of addressing those issues in substantive ways, this is a project that is in the national interest, and I support it. Are you worried that this issue could cost you the election in North Vancouver in the fall? I have great faith in the thoughtfulness of people who live in North Vancouver. They ultimately will need to decide. But I think that most folks, uh, not the loudest voices on either side, but most folks want a reasoned analysis and discussion about these issues. And I have comfort that they will come to a, a good conclusion and, uh, and, uh, and I will be reelected. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is Jonathan Wilkinson. He is the Federal Minister of Fisheries, Oceans, also responsible for the Canadian Coast Guard. If you take a look at how many public assets owned by the people of British Columbia were sold off by the previous Liberal government, the list is a long one, and it's really quite extraordinary. Vancouver Health Centers, North Shore Schools, acres and acres of agricultural land in Surrey, they're all among the 164 pieces of surplus land that the previous Liberal government sold for more than a billion dollars. A lot of really fine investigative work here done by Lori Culbert of the Vancouver Sun. And if you follow me on Twitter, I just tweeted the link to her series on this, which I encourage you to check out. Let's talk to Lori about it now. She's in the studio. Hi, Lori. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome, Mike. Nice to be here. Okay, this is really great work, and I, I really encourage people to check it out because people might remember that this was an issue that kind of blew up politically back when the Liberals were in office. The NDP raised a bit of a stink about the sell-off of, of land around Burke Mountain, for example. But I think maybe it's bigger than uh, people realize. Uh, how did you get into this, and how did you do the research on it? 
So I got a tip, which, as you know, journalists, we get these tips and some of them pan out and some of them don't. And uh, just to, you know, kind of start following the trail with these land sales. And so I looked back to what the Auditor General had done. And you're right. um, The NDP raised some big concerns about Burke Mountain. This is... um, this was a property, a series of properties sold in bulk in Coquitlam, uh, sold to developer, and uh, it was the Auditor General ultimately found that uh, the properties were sold at well below market value, and it was a really bad deal for taxpayers. The Auditor General looked at the first two years of this land sales program from 2013 to 2015, just to have a look at what was going on and uh, just just a bit of background information. You know, the government has always bought and sold land. That's not really new. But in 2013, the BC Liberals created this new program, the one we're talking about today. And its focus was primarily, really solely, to generate revenue to um, to pay down the debt, to um, you know, fund programs within the government. Um, It was purely a revenue generating program. And and that's when you start to see the number of properties really take off. So the Auditor General looks at the first two years from 2013 to 2015. Uh, she finds, uh, you know, big problems with the Burke Mountain sale. She find, And she makes a series of recommendations for uh, improvements. She says the whole program needs improvement and she makes these recommendations. Uh, and that report from her came out in 2018. And so what I decided to do was look at the next four years, which had not been included in the Auditor General's report from um, from 2013 all the way to 2019 right. to have a look at what's been going on. Okay, you did some really great digging here and you take a look at what has been sold, who bought it, whether taxpayers benefited uh, through these sales, let's talk about some of the the basic stats you you uncovered here, Lori. So, how many how many pieces of a surplus public asset, so called surplus, uh, was sold, and how much money was raised? So we now know that 164 uh, pieces of public property were sold. They were sold across the province, but you see kind of big chunks happening in certain cities like Surrey. Um, the the, the total price, uh, the, the total revenue brought in was was just over $1 billion, hmm. but uh, it cost the government about $100 million in for, you know, to to um, do these transactions. And then about another, I'm, I'm estimating here because it was hard to get exact numbers, but I'm pretty confident I'm in the right ballpark. Another $100 million needs to be uh, taken away from that um, bottom line because of what's called accommodation agreements with First Nations. So unceded territory, the government needed to make payments to First Nations so they would uh, release all claims to the properties. So we're probably looking at a profit of around $800 million. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that some ministries were selling more land than others. For example, uh, the Ministry of Education unloaded almost 50 uh, pieces of property, uh, many of them schools or, you know, pieces of land attached to schools. The Ministry of Transportation unloaded the most. Um, uh, the Ministry of Health didn't sell that many properties, but the ones they did sell were worth a fortune. And so the Ministry of Health actually brought in a huge a huge bulk of this money. Okay, this is really interesting stuff because I think, like you said off the top, it's it's not unusual or unprecedented for a government to sell 
unused public assets. I mean, that's one of the things that governments do. I guess the question here here is how many of these things were sold and did taxpayers get, get good value? And were some of the sales kind of I don't know, suspicious in a way for the from the people who bought them. Let's talk about some of the some of the the curious ones that you uncovered here. Where where would you start? What about this one in uh, Port Moody? The one in Port Moody is very strange, and it took me a long time to follow this paper trail. But um, basically, there's a, a First Nation called uh, the Coquitlam and Band, and. It, the just to back up a little bit with these accommodation agreements if if the if the land that the government wants to sell falls within the territorial territorial region of an indigenous group they basically the indigenous group basically has two options one they can get a payment from the government to to relinquish all claim on that land or two they can get a right of first refusal to buy the land itself and so in a handful of cases we have seen that happen and in some cases a first nations group has partnered with a developer to buy land in this particular case these four lots that were right uh, that are that are neighboring the new Port Moody SkyTrain station so you you can imagine this is an area that the Port Moody uh, City Council has pegged for big growth, big development, condominiums, right. uh, you know, stores, restaurants. It's right by this new SkyTrain station. So the government over the series in late 2017 and early 2018 sells four adjoining pieces of property to uh, this Coquitlam band. Um, and it is a, a direct sale. There's no competitive bidding process because it is the right of this First Nation to have first access to this land. But what I uncovered is on the very same day that each of these sales happened, the uh, numbered company that was created by the First Nation to buy these four pieces of property, on the very same day that the sales went through, then the uh, the First Nation band ceased to be the owner of the numbered company and it went right to BD development. And um, so it would appear that there was just a, a shuffle of ownership there. And, and the end result is we have a big name developer owning this property uh, without the government benefiting from any type of competitive bidding, competitive bidding process. Did some of these sales, I mean, obviously the liberals took their lumps over this when they were in power, but did, did some of these sales obviously continued under the present NDP government too, right? So they did. Now, what I'm told, and, and the paperwork does seem to bear this out, is that, you know, many of these transactions, they're complicated, they involve a lot of lawyers, um, real estate companies. And so the bulk of the ones that continued under the NDP appear to have been started by the Liberals. In fact, okay. these, these these deals that we're talking about right now in Port Moody, they were finalized uh, after the NDP was in power. But when right. I when I talked to them about that, they said, you know, that the everything had been set in motion. And, you know, we're going to have to monitor how the NDP handles this file. They they insist that they're going to do it differently, um, that they're going to look at land and consider whether it can be kept to be a school or a hospital or public housing before there's a sale. But I, but I have to say, uh, in the last fiscal year, 2018, 2019, when the NDP really did have more control over the program, the number of land sales really did plummet. As we continue my conversation with Lori Colbert, investigative reporter at the Vancouver Sun, with her, on her very fine series about uh, the B.C. government selling off 
public assets to raise money. 164 pieces of surplus land in BC sold for more than a billion dollars. Were these wise decisions to sell uh, this land off? 604-280-9898 is the number to call if you have a comment or question. 604-280-9898. Laurie, were were any of these uh, pieces of land sold to political insiders like, you know, big donors to the Liberal Party or anything like that? Yeah, you don't have to look very far to see that that's happening. I mean, to be fair, uh, big developers are the ones that have deep pockets and can and can you know, afford political contributions. And uh, they have in the past always supported the BC Liberals. But if you look at the uh, biggest revenue generating sales that have happened in this this, uh, program, almost exclusively they are going to uh, developers who have been uh, traditionally very, very generous supporters of the BC Liberals. Right. Right. What the, I remember the Liberals at the time at the time when this story blew up a little bit a few years ago, saying like, "Look, you know, this is this is what we do as government. We're just going to make rational decisions. If we've got a piece of land that we're not using that we don't need, why should we just let it sit there empty, uh, not generating any value for taxpayers? Let's sell it and and put the money to good work uh, elsewhere. Is that a rational or reasonable explanation for what they did here? I think it is for for some of the. For some of the lots, I think it is. Yeah. You know, there was a you know a piece of a lot by a highway, and the Ministry of Transportation didn't need it anymore. I mean, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but there's some other examples that are head shaking. So in North Vancouver, for example, uh, they sold uh, a, an elementary school, uh, in I believe it was 2013. That's now been developed, and there's nine single family homes uh, sitting on that property. In the meantime, the city of North Vancouver has. Uh, uh, is underway with developing this massive development that's going to bring 1,500 new homes into this uh, this very same neighborhood. And the closest school now has 12 portables in its backyard. The, the, wow. the, the area is desperate for a new school. Yeah. yeah, that does make you scratch your head for sure. What kind of reaction have you gotten to the series this week, Laurie? It's it's interesting. Um, the readers of my newspaper they often tend to be uh, a bit more supportive of the liberal government. Um, I write a lot of stories about social services. I don't always get a lot of positive feedback to those, but it has been overwhelming uh, the amount of um, outrage I've been hearing from mm-hmm. readers about about the sale of this land. I would say the vast vast majority of them are very against what's happened. 604-280-9898 is the number to call if you want to hop on board. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Bob in Chilliwack. Yeah, if I remember that correctly, they, they sold a lot of viable land off and they for a fire sale deal to put in the hands of developers. Like she said, that was also part of the story. But they, yeah. they could have given that land to developers and told, okay, you got free land here. You can't afford to operate outside of the pure investment when you build and develop. So you build housing, so you only have to pay for the cost of building and providing the housing and putting the infrastructure on the land. Then maybe they could actually be able to afford to build a house that somebody could afford to live in. Yeah, like uh, use it for, okay, thanks for the call, like use it for affordable housing. Was Was anything done like that, Lori, in any of this land that was sold off? 
You know, so we see a lot of these um, agreements, especially in the city of Vancouver, for example, where the developer is required to include a certain percentage of the units to be for affordable or social housing. But we don't have to look very far back in history to know that those agreements don't always happen. Um, the little mountain site has been sitting empty for 10 years where Holborn was supposed to have created 250 affordable housing units um, by now, and we haven't seen them. So for sure, some of those agreements are being made. We just have to make sure that they actually happen. Okay. As you mentioned earlier, some of these asset sales will con- will continue under, it doesn't matter which party's in power, it could continue under the ND- NDP government. What is the NDP saying about this? I mean, they're, they're kind of piling on the Liberals. I noticed they put out a news release this week saying the Liberals have got to answer for this, for the, what you've uncovered in here in this series. Are the NDP promising to stop these sales or to do them differently? What are they saying? So there's apparently still 69 properties on the surplus land sale list. Um, and again, the NDP says they're going to uh, approach this in a, in a different way. Um, and, you know, to consider if the properties can be used for, for some other use. Uh, and yep. you're right, it's it's political. They're dumping on the Liberals for what's been done in the past. Right. Um, and I think, again, we're just going to have to just watch this very closely to, um, to, to see if they do actually change things. But as I said earlier, the number of sales under uh, NDP control have really plummeted. Uh, so Okay. Great job on it. Uh, where can people check out the stories if they want to read them online? VancouverSun.com, it's all there, right? That is it. Okay, cool. Lori, thanks for coming on. You're welcome, Mike. I, I appreciate it. It's Lori Colbert, investigative reporter of the Vancouver Sun. Around this time yesterday on the show, I spoke with Susan Stokoff. Now, she is the bicycle mayor of Victoria. And what that means, he's kind of an ambassador for cycling for the city, which I guess it was a good thing, right? But here's what surprised me during this interview. She said that she does not typically wear a helmet when she is cycling herself and she thinks nobody else should be forced to wear a helmet either right now helmet use is mandatory in bc under the law for cyclists she says that should be scrapped or or at least not enforced people should not be forced to wear a helmet here's what she told me I don't think there should be a law telling us how to care for ourselves. I think that should be your own decision. Um, and then, you know, actually in Alberta, um, the law is you can choose to wear your helmet or not after the age of 18. So um, I just think that we should be able to make a decision for ourselves. And if wearing a helmet is what gets you on your bicycle, then you should do that. Okay, I didn't real. I, I was not impressed with that because I think it's a bad message to be sending, especially to kids. Especially coming from the bicycle mayor of the Victoria, I think you know, saying a, encouraging people or saying that maybe wearing not wearing a helmet is okay. I don't think is a good thing at all. Now this sparked a whole ton of conversation on our buzz line yesterday. We got emails, we got tweets all day on it. Uh, our buzz line's still burning up. So here's what I want to do right now: call me on the open line and tell me what you think about that. Should BC's mandatory helmet laws be mand be uh, scrapped? What do you think about the bicycle mayor of Victoria? Uh, saying she doesn't wear a helmet, she doesn't think other people should be forced to wear a helmet. 604-280-9898.
604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. As we get your calls lined up, let's uh, talk now to Dr. Shalina Babol. She is a spokesperson for the Community Against Preventable Injuries. She's a specialist in concussions and traumatic brain injuries. I'm very pleased she could join us. Hi. Hi there. Thanks a lot for coming on. I imagine in your line of work you've treated uh, people who have suffered a head injury from a, a cycling accident. Yeah, and the reality is, um, you know, uh, brain injuries or concussions are, are an invisible epidemic. Unless you've gone through it or know someone who's gone through it, you really don't understand the significant impact it can have on not just your life, but everyone around you and your support system as well. Yeah, what do you think about BC's mandatory helmet law for cyclists? Is that a good thing in your mind? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reality is the helmet is there to pre- prevent uh, a significant serious head injury from occurring. It won't eliminate a concussion uh, because the mechanics around a, a concussion is a brain bouncing around inside the skull. But your helmet is there to mitigate the severity by absorbing uh, the impact to the helmet as opposed to your head. Okay, what do you think about this argument that if you if you force people to wear a helmet, it's a, it's a discouragement or it's a barrier for people getting into a healthy activity like cycling? Does that make any sense to you? And we've heard that a lot about, you know, people feel that if, if they're forced to wear a helmet, they're not going to ride, or there's the whole notion around risk compensation. If someone's wearing a helmet, they feel invincible and will, you know, ride more recklessly. But the evidence and the research to date shows otherwise. Uh, in fact, in, in British Columbia, in, in the in lower mainland, uh, ridership actually went up in 2017 from about uh, 53,000 53, cyclists around uh, using the bike counter at uh, Science world went up to 227,000 riders. So that's showing you the opposite uh, right there. And the research really shows you that wearing a helmet reduces your risk of serious head injury by 69% and death by 65%. So that's significant. (laughs) Yes, I would definitely say so. Mm -hmm. I have had some pushback on this from the other side of it, though. Like people Mm -hmm. who've said to me, no, you you know, this bicycle mayor in Victoria is right, that you shouldn't be forced to wear a helmet because if you're going to get hit by a speeding car, the helmet's not going to help you anyway. What do well, you say to that? Yeah, I'm not sure you, I mean, if you get hit by a vehicle at, at high-intensity speeds, you may or may not, the helmet may or may not protect you. You don't know, but at least you've got that added protection to to protect your head. I mean, Pardon the pun, but it's a no-brainer. If you hit your head on concrete without a helmet versus a helmet, what's going to help? What's going to protect you and potentially mitigate your severity of injury? Uh, and the other argument I've heard is comparing Canada and Victoria, British Columbia, to other cities around the world that have a much more developed sort of cycling culture. And I'm thinking of like a city like Amsterdam, for example, yeah. where there's so many people riding. And if you take a look at photos of people in Amsterdam, it's almost like nobody's wearing a helmet. Yeah, we hear that a lot. But you have to understand that the reality is the infrastructure and the environment uh, in, in places like Amsterdam, the Netherlands, uh, is very different from what we have here in Canada. Um, certainly, a helmet legislation isn't the only answer. I mean, we want, um, you know, infrastructure changes. We want education. It's, you know, it's all these components together to prevent injuries. So that's the key. I think, you know, we're saying wear a helmet, be safe, be educated, be knowledgeable how to prevent and protect yourself. But we do want other changes such as, you know, bike lanes around our city, which we're, we're getting. and. Right. and that's making a difference as well. Just in the one minute we got left, in, in your own practice and in, in, in treating head injuries, have you seen examples of people who maybe come in to see you and they've 
they've had an act, they've been cycling and they've been hit or they've had an accident and they're wearing their helmet and it's, and it's saved them a much more serious injury? Absolutely. We've had yeah. numerous cases where they've come in where their helmet has, you know, practically disintegrated and they're completely fine wow. um, because that helmet has protected them. We've had uh, colleagues, uh, you know, within the hospital with, the, you know, having the same injury. Uh, and the only thing that protected them was their helmet. They did have a concussion, but they yeah. survived uh, and went through the motions of a concussion, but they did survive. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, you bet. I really appreciate it. Dr. Shalina Babul, she is with the Community Against Preventable Injuries. Talk about the inflation rate ticking up last month, especially the price of food. Statistics Canada says the annual pace of inflation up to 2.4% in May compared to a year ago. The price of food in particular also heading up steadily. Let's check in with an expert now, Professor Simon Samoji. He's the Errol Chair in Business of Food at the University of Guelph. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Hi, thank you. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's talk about the price of food now. When you take a look at these uh, this inflation rate, what uh, food categories are going up the most? Well, as you mentioned, the, the price overall is about 2.5% for a family, but some food categories are going up considerably more than that. So we're seeing dairy up by about 3%, uh, meat close to 3%, but the big thing uh, is fresh vegetables. We're seeing a 16.7% increase over wow. the last two months for those things. Gee, that's a big hike. What's driving that? Well, there's a, n a number of things driving that. Um, the main ones being the fact that we're in Canada, we have to import a lot of our fruit and vegetables. So we've just come from winter. We have winter disrupt disruptions with bad weather that slows down trucks getting into our grocery stores. That slowdown decreases supply and increases the cost. So that's been happening. A few other things as well. So we've seen uh, contamination scares in the U.S. with vegetables like uh, particularly leafy greens like uh, lettuce, romaine lettuce in particular, uh, and that meant that that product came out of, the, out of the market and increased price. And the other big one is, is changing consumer preferences. We've seen an increase um, in people's interest in celery, as an example. Is that we've seen the price of celery skyrocket at the shelf because we have to import most of our, our celery as well. So... Um, Importation drives up price. Okay. A lot of people are looking at switching away from meat and getting more mm. vegetables into their diet. Is, that, is there kind of a supply and demand curve that kicks in there? I mean, if there's more demand for vegetables, mm. the price goes up. We are seeing more and more Canadians eating vegetables. About 3 million Canadians are adding more and more vegetables to their diet. In fact, close to 3 million Canadians actually are putting meat out of their diet, I should say. What we're seeing is that increase, but it's not having a dramatic effect at this point in time in price. That big figure, the 16.7% increase in the last 12 months for vegetables, really is because we are importing a lot. Uh, and, you know, there's ways the government can look at how they can, we can shift that. And as consumers, we can also re decrease um, our consumption of those expensive things looking at cheaper things. Okay, this has got to be hitting families in the pocketbook, you got to figure. I mean, this has got to be hundreds of dollars a year, I imagine, for a typical family, would it be? 
it's really difficult. If you're a family of four, you're trying to put nutritious food on the table. We've seen the new food guide that Canada came out with a few months ago uh, telling you to eat less meat, eat more fruit and veg, and now fruit and veg is going up. So there are ways to get around that. You can go into the frozen food aisle and get frozen vegetables. They're just as good for you as the fresh variety in terms of nutrition. Uh, they're also a lot lower in price. So there are ways to substitute out fresh vegetables in particular. Okay, I think that's great. Get some consumer tips out there. Any other tips for saving money? Well, I think you know people need to be thinking long-term here. So some of these changes are cyclical. We're going into uh, the main growing season in Canada where you can buy fruit and vegetables from farmers markets. A lot of local production is is coming on stream now. Uh, so that can decrease the price a little bit. Uh, I think one of the important things that we have to remember is that we're moving into an, uh, a period of time where the federal government is coming out with a, a food policy. And that food policy which was released the other day, talks a lot about helping social groups and indigenous communities uh, get more, better access to food, and that's really important. But we need to stop this cyclical, seasonal issue of fruit and vegetable prices routinely f going up really high um, because we have to import. So maybe it's the government needs to invest or provide more incentives for greenhouse operations across Canada, uh, more research and development into plant varieties that work better in greenhouses so we can just reduce our reliance on having to import a lot of our fresh fruit and vegetables from places like the U.S. and Mexico. Okay, speaking of Simon Samoji from the University of Guelph about this, the skyrocketing cost of food, I, I think that's a, a really interesting point about what the government can do here to help. Is there any other kind of government measures that they can take to, to help Canadians get quality food on the table at an affordable price? We've seen the government assisting things like food banks, which help out um, those who are really struggling to put f food on their table. And the new food policy that came out the other day is providing more uh, money, more resources towards that. So that, that's a good thing. Um, I think we need to remember that the retailers of this world and, the, and the, the producers of this world are the ones where we buy most of our fruit and vegetables from. So... Uh, we really have to help the retailers get stuff on their shelves that's as low as cost to them as possible. So really, I think we need to help our food processes. We need to help our, our farmers and particularly the, our modern farmers that are focusing more and more on indoor farming and you know, greenhouses as well to be able to produce as efficiently as possible so that they can get us products that are going to be cheaper because they don't have to come so far away. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. That's right. Professor Simon Samaji from the University of Guelph. He's an expert in the business of food, talking about the inflation rate in Canada ticking up last month. I mean, let's talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline now. The president and the CEO of Trans Mountain uh, speaking today to reporters. This is after the approval yesterday by the Justin Trudeau government. They're ready to get to work and get the shovels in the ground. Here's Ian Anderson. That process could run from weeks to months. Uh, we anticipate it will be on the shorter end of that. Construction season, uh, for me, uh, contemplates getting back to work by uh, late summer, early fall. If things go according to plan, 
I could see shovels in the ground uh, as early as September, early September. Okay, he also says shovels in the ground, including in British Columbia by September to get this pipeline in the ground. In the House of Commons, meanwhile, this is in the past hour, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau defending the decision to approve the pipeline. Over the past four years, we've taken more concrete actions to protect our environment than any government in Canada's history. We are going to continue to move forward and that in partnership with Indigenous communities uh, in uh, respect of the environmental concerns. Uh, But Mr. Speaker, we on this side of the House recognize that not all Indigenous communities support uh, the way we're moving forward, even though we've consulted with them extensively. Okay, that's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in the last hour. Let's check in now with B.C. Environment Minister George Heyman on the line. Minister, thanks for coming on. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks for doing this. You just heard from Ian Anderson there, the head of uh, Trans Mountain, saying they're ready to rock here and get this pipe in the ground, uh, shovels in the ground by September. Is that going to happen on your watch? Well, uh, Mike, as you know, uh, we've opposed the project. Uh, we opposed it at the National Energy Board. We've continued to insist that the, uh, neither the National Energy Board nor the federal government were able to demonstrate that the project proponent had uh, shown that they could adequately respond to a devastating uh, spill of bitumen. But we have uh, been operating within the law. We've to date uh, issued permits where they all the information required for a permit, a provincial permit, has been provided where the uh, consultation can be demonstrated. Uh, I think about 310 of those permits have been uh, issued. There's about uh, over 800 applications yet to come. We're going to operate within the law, but we're going to yeah. continue to uh, to insist to the federal government that they don't have adequate safeguards in place in a, in a number of ways, and uh, we have no control over uh, what the courts will do. First Nations have indicated they're going back to court, and that will play out. So does that mean there's nothing you can do to stop it? Well, we have uh, we have said for the last two years, Mike, that uh, the decision to proceed is a federal government decision. It's clearly their jurisdiction, whether we like it or not. We've uh, we've told them we think it's a bad uh, project and a necessary project that poses tremendous risk to BC's economy, tens of thousands of jobs and fisheries and in, uh, in tourism. Uh, in uh, even in film, uh, over a billion dollars in uh, BC's economy, which is also in the national interest. But the feds have made the decision, and that's their decision to make. Uh, we will continue to do everything we can to protect BC's interest to uh, up the uh, the rigor of the uh, preparedness and safeguards that we think should be in place uh, if this project goes ahead. And of course, we don't think it should, but it's not our decision. Okay, you mentioned uh, bitumen, the heavy crude oil that would flow through this pipe and be exported out of uh, the lower mainland. What are your specific concerns about that particular product, bitumen? Well, the science to date uh, shows that its behavior in water is unpredictable. It uh, it can sink, particularly uh, with turbulence, and if if it's not picked up early enough, very shortly after it's spilled, um, it can become almost impossible to manage. Uh, it's got toxic qualities, and uh, we said to the National Energy Board hearing in the second phase that um, Trans Mountain hadn't demonstrated uh, that they had adequate uh, spill prevention and response capacity in place, and nothing in the conditions that were brought forward uh, by the, the NEB or the federal government have uh, have uh, appreciably uh, added to that capacity, whether it's uh, geographic response times or uh, geographic-specific uh, plans. Uh, we believe if there's a spill, that there's no evidence that it can be cleaned up. 
Okay, what, what is your government doing right now to stop the flow of bitumen through our waters now? Because this stuff is being loaded on tankers now and, and shipped through our waters. What are you guys doing to stop that? Well, we appreciate that that's happening now, and that's happening under uh, legal permits that have been granted. We've uh, introduced within our jurisdiction some additional spill control uh, regulations that uh, that were put out for public consultation, and interestingly, there was no objection from either the federal or Alberta government to that, but our uh, our jurisdiction here is limited. Our, our ability to represent British Columbia's interests is to push the federal government as hard as we can to make presentations to both uh, the National Energy Board, uh, who who heard uh, uh, permit applications on this, as well as to the courts that point out that there are real risks and that um, the risks aren't uh, being adequately mitigated in the proposals. The specifics okay. are simply lacking. Okay, but there was $1.5 billion worth of bitumen went through our waters just last year alone. If this stuff is so dangerous, I, I assume you want that stopped too? Uh, we're not saying that. We're saying we need adequate spill capacity in response, Mike. Uh, there is a certain amount of uh, bitumen going through. It's going through yeah. at about one-seventh of the amount of tankers as are proposed under uh, the expansion, and there's smaller tankers. Uh, having why, said why that, is we, that still a... believe, we still believe that uh, the ability to respond to spills needs to be increased uh, significantly. Uh, so we're working uh, on every front we can to protect British Columbia's coast, our economy and jobs. But why are you not trying to stop the, the bitumen that's going through the water now? I mean, if it's so bad, if, if it presents a, such a catastrophic threat to our economy and our environment, why is it okay the amount that's going through now? Like, I don't get it. Mike, it's federal jurisdiction. Uh, it's permitted. It's been going through for a while, and we're doing everything we can and have been uh, since we uh, we took office to ensure that both federal regulations and BC regulations are as stringent and tight as they can be. We've been working to increase uh, uh, indigenous capacity to respond directly to spills. Uh, ultimately, uh, this is a proposal for a massive increase uh, with uh, much larger tankers that will uh, exponentially increase the risk, and uh, we're uh, interested in controlling that from the, the prospect of so, future expansion and the lack of yeah. adequate safeguards. Okay, so the current risk is acceptable to you. Is that, is that correct? Mike, that's not what I said. What I said is we need uh, better response capacity for the risks that exist now. We need uh, better protections. We need uh, guarantees in place that if there is a spill, it can be cleaned up. And if uh, it's not cleaned up, that there's uh, there's compensation for Indigenous nations and for, uh, for businesses and communities that are impacted. But we've said that uh, on top of that, to increase the risk uh, exponentially is not in BC's interest, and that's why we're standing. But I guess uh, I guess to do everything we can to, to uh, stop that uh, yeah. by uh, advocating before the courts and the National Energy Board, and if it does go ahead, to ensure that uh, there is greater capacity to respond to a spill. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out why you're doing everything you can to stop the increased flow of bitumen, but you're not doing everything you can to stop the stuff that's going through the water now. I mean, to me, that's almost like a tacit admission that the 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 stuff that's going through the water now is an acceptable risk for you and your government. And, and I'm like just you, trying to figure out how you how you how you quantify that. Like, you know, you have, what's what's your risk assessment algorithm here to figure that out? Well, you assert that uh, that we have an acceptable level of risk, and I, I've said that we don't. That and what are you uh, doing about have, it? 
Mike, we have exports that are currently permitted, and we've advocated to the federal government strongly that we need greater response capacity, including uh, uh, better plans, better response times, involvement of Indigenous nations, more uh, towing and, uh, and Coast Guard capacity, and that's what we need to do to ensure that we're protected against those things that are currently permitted and where things have not yet been permitted or hadn't been permitted until yesterday, uh, right. that, um, that we've stood at the National Energy Board and the court to say that the risk is too great. Now that the federal government has approved it again, we will continue uh, to tell them that their, uh, their proposals to mitigate risk aren't yet good enough. They don't come close, yeah. and they need to expand the capacity to respond to a spill. And uh, we will certainly look at any court case that's brought forward by uh, First Nations. They've indicated that they're going to bring uh, court cases forward. Uh, we right. intervened in the federal court uh, of appeal decision that put that project on hold and sent it back uh, to the drawing board. And if appropriate, uh, we'd look at that. In the meantime, uh, we're taking to the Supreme Court of Canada our uh, our case that said, uh, despite the fact that the federal government has sole jurisdiction for approval, we have jurisdiction to put environmental safeguards in place for BC. Okay. The federal government says no, and it's now before the courts. Okay, last question for you, Minister. Speaking of First Nations, what do you say to the First Nations who are now lining up in support of this project? In fact, a lot of them are banding together and saying, we want to buy it, and we want to make money from it, we want to manage it safely, we want to use the, the profits that flow from this project to pay for housing, uh, elder care, education for our kids in these First Nations communities that are in many cases impoverished. What, what do you say to them? It's not our job to advise uh, First Nations about projects they should invest in or, or not invest in. Our job is to protect the overall interests of British Columbia's environment and economy, and no matter who owns the project, uh, that's the responsibility that we're taking seriously. We've been consistent in that. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. I appreciate it. That's George Heyman. He is BC's Minister of Education. Let's talk about caring for seniors in British Columbia now. And I dare say most seniors, they get older, want to remain in their own home for as long as possible. Now, and sometimes you have a case where there's not much of an option for a senior to have to go into a nursing home or some other sort of uh, care outside of their own home. But I would think that most seniors... Aging in place is the goal, to remain in your home as long as possible. And that, I think, should be the goal for us as a society and a province. So home care obviously then becomes a very critical piece of the puzzle here. What kind of services can we provide to seniors in their own homes so they can stay there as long as possible? Brand new report out on this today by Isabel McKenzie, the Seniors Advocate for the province of British Columbia that takes a, a, a close look at the cost of this with some surprising findings. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks. My pleasure. Okay, I'm right on that, right? Seniors, want they want to stay in their own homes as long as you can, right? They do. That's the yeah. overwhelming message we, we hear. And we just completed a survey that actually reinforced that. When we asked people who are currently aged uh, 75 to 85, where do you see yourself in 10 years when they're 85 to 95, the majority still see themselves in their own home. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's where we all want to stay. So I think home care is obviously a big component on that. But you're, you're raising the alarm today about the cost of home care, right? Well, there's two things, uh, Mike. The cost of home care to the senior, which is 
uh, a backward incentive where we, uh, through our daily copayment rate that we charge, we are making a senior on an income of $28,000 pay $8,800 a year for a daily visit of home support. That is about uh, 30%, uh, give or take, of their income. If we put that same senior into uh, long-term care, the taxpayer is going to pay about $31,000 more for that person to be in long-term care then we would pay to give that person uh, two hours of home support a day. And uh, the average home support is far below two hours a day. Okay, the home support program. So this is a services that provides services to seniors in their home, and it's subsidized by the provincial government. Is that how it works? In theory. So uh, every province has a version of this program. Most provinces don't charge for it. We do in British Columbia, and we have the highest charges of anybody who does charge. Wow. And it is the, it's a program where somebody, a care worker called a community health worker, CHW, comes into the home. They might help somebody get up in the morning, get dressed, uh, give them their morning medications, and then be on their way, and the person can can get going for the rest of the day. They might come back later in the day and and help the person get into bed. Um, We care for some fairly complex clients in the community where we're providing a lot of service and we're doing tube feeding and um, dressing uh, changes and things like that. But the idea is that we can provide, the public will help support you a little bit at home because it's more cost-effective for the taxpayer than paying for you. A long-term care bed in this province costs about $80,000 a year, and the taxpayer pays the majority of that. Right, so it makes economic sense to keep people in their homes as long as we can. Yes, it does. Right. Yeah. Okay, so $8,800 a year for a senior for uh, home care services. I mean, that's got to be... I mean, how, how do you quantify that number as, as in terms of affordability? Well, I don't think it is, and uh, it's a, it, the charge goes up the more you earn. So the $28,000 a year person is paying 8800 but the $56,000 a year person uh, is paying $20,000 a year for their home support, and the $80,000 a year person is paying $30,000 a year for their home support, um, and they'd save about $15,000 a year by moving into long-term care. We, the oh. taxpayers, would pay a lot more. Okay, so it, it seems like the incentive should be working the other way around. I mean, you know, we should have an incentive to keep people in, in their homes, right? So what, what are you recommending on this today? Well, I think we've got to have a much more progressive approach to the, cl- to the client rate. I mean, one of the things, Mike, that jumped out, the big number, was the 61% of seniors admitted to long-term care who had absolutely no home support in the months prior to their admission. Uh, that's a big red flag that should be prompting a lot of questions as it did for me. And when you drill down and try to find out why is that, the thing that pops is, well, a whole bunch of them can't afford the public home support we offer. They can afford the publicly subsidized long-term care. And the incentives should actually uh, be working the the other way. So uh, a more progressive approach like we see with Pharmacare where a person is charged 4% of their income, they they have to pay up to 4% of their income for their medications, and then we kick in after that, so you only have to pay a certain amount. Having Taking that approach to home support uh, co-payments, I think, would be a good progressive approach. And then for the people who are receiving home support, 
the other thing we found is that certainly for those at high high care need levels at um, at very high and high risk of placement in a care facility, we're falling far 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 short of the four hours a day, which has always been the tipping point about when you would go into long term care. And we also talk a little bit about a client direct funding program because I think for a lot of families, uh, particularly if they're making the decision to put mom or dad into a care facility or their husband or wife into a care facility, and it's a very uh, agonizing and heart-wrenching decision, um, part of it is because they can get four hours a day, but it comes in, in bits and bobs. And really, if we just turned the funding over to them, they could manage to care for their mom or dad at home the taxpayers would be better off and the families would be happier. And we have a little bit of a client direct funding program out there, but it's very bureaucratic and very frustrating for families to access. Okay, I'm speaking to Isabel McKenzie. She's British Columbia's independent seniors advocate about her brand new report out today on home care services in our province. I mean, I think that's um, kind of a topsy-turvy uh, funding uh, system that you, you've just described there that may su- may surprise a lot of people. What about the level of care that seniors and the quality of care that seniors are receiving in British Columbia right now? I know this is another key concern you have. Well, I certain in terms of the quality, um, we had some feedback through our home support survey that was a little bit encouraging. That that. Uh, when the worker is there, uh, a lot of people think they have uh, some of the skills that are needed, not all of the skills, and so there's an opportunity for improvement there. But when we look at the actual service levels, how many visits a day, how many hours a day, um, we're definitely falling far short of where we should be, particularly when we look at the uh, complexity and the chronic conditions of the people we're delivering the care to. We're able to see in our review not just how many hours people are getting, but we can see what their level of, we call it complexity or acuity, and what conditions they have. So we we can tell how many hours they should be getting um, versus how many hours they are getting, and there's a big gap between the two. Okay, if our goal is to keep seniors in their homes as long as, as, long as possible, um, should we therefore be working to reduce those fees that you described to make it affordable for seniors to stay in their home? Yes, I think there's a big group of people who, when they're told what their daily rate is, they say, no thanks. We can tell by looking at the income. They're not turning around and buying it privately because they haven't got the money. Um, And I think we need to do a better job of uh, getting them access to the service because we know based on the health of the population, health conditions of the population over 85, where 41% have high-complexity chronic care conditions, and only 16% are getting home support, that there's a big gap there between who should be getting it and who is getting it. Is there an opportunity to actually save taxpayers money here if we can make it more affordable to keep people in their homes by reducing their fees? You might think, well, it's going to cost taxpayers more money, but does it actually work out as a savings in the long run if we can keep them out of a more expensive home care situation? It does, and especially as we look at increasing demand in the years ahead. So the, the tipping point is four hours, Mike, and at that point, you know, it's a bit of uh, six of one, half dozen of the other, depending on your particular income and the cost of the care home. At three hours, it's unambiguous that, you know, three hours of home support is less expensive for us to provide than the subsidy for long-term care. And the 4,200 beds that are occupied right now are by people who could be cared for in the community. Those beds would be filled tomorrow um, by the people who really need them. We do have uh, an increasing demand 
for long-term care beds. And so I think that making sure that people are in the right place uh, at the right time uh, is very important. And we talk a lot about alternative levels of care in the hospitals. Well, we also have alternative levels of care in our long-term care facilities. Very important report today from you today. Thanks for coming on. Talk about it. Okay, appreciate it, Mike. Thank you very much for your interest. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's Isabel McKenzie, the Independent Seniors Advocate for British Columbia, with some uh, interesting analysis there on the cost of home care.